Winterhawk Podcasting presents Lower 48. Episode 2, Undergrowth. All right. Okay, I got it rolling here. Awesome. All right. Hey, Cammy. Um, <clears throat> we're uh, still on the road on our way out to Monterey, but uh, we just wanted to check in like you asked. Didn't you have a bone to pick Oh, you know her? what? Yeah. Uh, Cammy, I seem to recall a conversation that... Uh, we had once where you very strictly told me that uh, liking a message is not an adequate response. Oh, and why did we feel like we needed to bring that up, Austin? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Mm -hmm. It's because we sent you the last voice memo like you asked and you liked it. Despicable. Honestly, I'm going to put that in my quarterly review. <laughs> yeah. I'm sending it straight to HR. Mm -hmm. I hope you know that. Which is you, so it'll so, so check your inbox. So <laughs> we're still in West Virginia, and as mm -hmm. Austin said, we're driving over to Monterey. We're still following the Tibbs Journal, but uh, we actually stopped for a little while in this little town called Harmon. Um, it's over by like this beautiful mountain range, mm -hmm. uh, and there's like I think five people in the town yeah, that live there. Yeah, exactly. There was a guy walking around with no shoes and a goat on a leash. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, Honestly, I'm jealous. Yeah. I'm a little jealous. Yeah. But uh, we stopped at the only restaurant in town, and it was kind of interesting because we met a woman in there, uh, mostly because there was only three of us in there <laughs> at the yeah. time. Yeah, we, we, all, we all were sitting up at the counter together, and we just got to chatting because she really didn't look like, like she was not dressed like the permanent residence. <laughs> mostly it's because she was wearing a North Face jacket, which... Yeah. Uh, considering uh, what everybody else was wearing in town. Like, uh, she stood out like a sore thumb. So, yeah, we just chatted with her for a little bit, and uh, she asked us why we were there. We were kind of telling her about the podcast a little bit. And, and she got really interested for just a moment, and, and she got a real intense look on her face. Yeah. And that's when she started telling us this story. My name is Riley. And a few years back, I was studying pharmacology at the West Virginia School of Medicine and was not doing well. My MCAT score was just good enough to get into the school, and with the course load, I was barely able to keep my head above water. Depressed and looking for an escape, I went to a bar, and that's where I met Jackson. We had a whirlwind romance. He was everything I thought I wanted. He was fun, carefree, and spontaneous. I was the happiest I had ever been. It wasn't until after we were married for six months that I realized that this attitude wasn't a cute quirk of his personality, but an unchangeable aspect of his life. I was still in school, and as you can imagine, being a second year of a four-year medical program didn't exactly offer me a particularly open schedule. This led to some friction in my marriage. Jackson wanted to go out on the weekend, but I had to study for an exam. Jackson wanted to take me to a nice dinner, 
but I had homework due the next day. Even on holidays, I was more concerned with what I needed to get done the next day that I couldn't even enjoy the very rare day off. Understandably, Jackson slowly just stopped inviting me to go out with him. And two months before our first anniversary, I noticed that he stopped telling me where he was going out altogether. This perturbed me, but I could either worry about the growing man-child in my home or the growing mountain of work that never seemed to go away. I chose to focus on my work. This obvious distance led to a growing disdain from Jackson. There were some nights where he wouldn't even come home. I had decided that we should get a divorce, but when I talked to my mom, she told me that I wasn't putting in any effort either, and I should try to see things from his perspective a little more. She was right, of course. I was so worried about school that I didn't even consider how it might feel to live with a glorified roommate. The next day, I approached Jackson and made my intentions clear. I wanted to go with him on his next trip. He looked shocked, to say the least. He told me that he was going backcountry skiing with some friends on Saturday. I had never been skiing, but I wanted to make an effort, so I told him I was all for it. So that weekend, bundled up in my parka, we found ourselves at the trailhead of Mount Port Crayon. We met up with a few of Jackson's friends, a couple named Nate and Emma that I had met at a party once, and a man named Evan whom I'd never met before. After we awkwardly greeted each other, the five of us began the tedious hike into the crayon. While the others walked effortlessly into the white wilderness, I stood out like a sore thumb, trudging heavy-footed in a pair of boots that got snow in them the second my foot plunged ankle-deep into the snowbank. I felt ignored. The only interaction I had with the group was when Evan handed me a pair of hand warmers that I gratefully shoved into my gloves. The hike took ages, and I was miserable when I heard Jackson finally yell that he had found the spot, a clear run of pure white snow. Everyone immediately began to strap into their skis and snowboards just to glide down the powdery incline. Everyone but myself. I didn't know the first thing about skiing, but I also didn't want to ruin Jackson's time. So I found a rock to sit on and just watched and forced a smile as they hiked up the hill just to turn around and slide back down. I swore they did this 20 or so times before I noticed some black clouds gathering over the horizon. This was odd because I had checked the weather before we lost service, and I swear that the forecast called for clear skies all day. I immediately called out to Jackson, who was hiking back up the slope. He just waved me off and went for another run. Angry, I shoved my hand warmers into my boots to help thaw out my feet and began walking towards Nate and Emma, who had just made it up to the top. I pointed out the clouds to them and I must have looked concerned because Emma took a soft tone with me while she said that they had skied through worse and did not worry about a little fresh powder. I looked on in disbelief as they dropped back down the run together. As the clouds raced closer, I was struck by just how dark they were. I'm no stranger to the gray overcast of a winter snowfall, but these looked more like the kind of large black clouds that you'd see during a summer storm. As the wind began to pick up, I looked down the hill at the tiny figures of my husband and friends. They looked like they were in distress. I could see one of them on the ground and Jackson waving his arms at me, though I couldn't hear him over the wind. I started trudging down the steep hill as fast as I could, 
trying my best not to fall. As I got closer, I saw the reason for Jackson's franticness. Evan was sprawled out, his snowboard broken in two, and a large gash ran down the side of his snow pants. The red of his blood left a trail in the snow behind him, coalescing into a puddle where he finally sat, reeling in pain. Glancing at the scene told me the entire story. Evan tried to cut through the trees, but hit an exposed rock that was just off the trail. As his board broke, he slid into a large pine tree where a jagged, pointed branch caught his leg, leaving him in the state I now found him in. I knew that it wouldn't be long before the snowstorm reached us. We had to get Evan out of there. I asked Emma to give me her scarf. She looked at me with fear in her eyes. I could tell that she was reluctant to remove anything that would protect her from the storm. Jackson and Nate pleaded to just do it. The power of the wind began to cut deeper, and Nate tightened his hood around his head. Emma finally relented and pulled the length of cloth back from around her neck. I used it to create a makeshift bandage, and I wrapped it tightly around Evan's wounded leg. Snow began to fall around us. I had Jackson and Nate pick Evan up, and he let out a gasp of pain as they lifted him out of his blood pool. Together, the five of us began the trek back up the hill. Emma started up first, while the rest of us trailed behind. It wasn't long before the full fury of the storm made itself known. The wind began swirling around us. This caused the snow to come down with a force that I had never felt before. I pulled my hood up and cinched the jawstrings to try to reduce my exposure to the harsh snow, but each snowflake felt like pebbles hitting me through my coat. Suddenly, through the howling winds, I heard a scream. I looked up and saw that Emma had slipped and was sliding back towards us. I leapt up front to try to catch her. I wasn't able to find solid enough footing fast enough as she slammed into my legs, toppling me over. We both began sliding down the hill, and I watched Jackson, Nate, and Evan disappear into the white void. Frantically, I grabbed for something, anything to slow me down. I ended up grabbing onto the hood of Emma's coat, which had started slipping off her due to the direction of our fall. The ground was hard and jagged with ice, and I could hear the material of my coat scraping as we plummeted to what I was sure was our death. We came to a sudden stop when I collided with the trunk of a tree right at the edge of the tree line. It felt like a kick in the stomach from a steel-toed boot. Emma slipped out of her coat and rolled down a little further into the growth of trees. The wind was knocked out of me, and I struggled to catch my breath. Though the storm was still raging, the trees provided enough cover to shelter us from the brunt of it. I regained a little bit of my composure and realized that I was still holding Emma's coat. I began looking around for her, but it was so dark. I pulled out my phone and turned on the flashlight. I began to crawl deeper and deeper into the trees. The darkness of the undergrowth was only slightly diminished by the weak light of my phone. It felt like I was crawling for what seemed like ages, but soon I found the shivering shape of Emma lying on the ground. She was barely conscious. Her exposed arms were already blue from the cold and her t-shirt and skin were cut up from the ice and twigs. I unzipped her coat and with great effort slid her arms through the sleeves. Disoriented and injured, I sat back down next to her, bracing my back against the trunk of a tree. It was some time before I felt like I could move again. I didn't dare open my coat. 
but I could feel the soreness of a welt forming on my stomach. The pain was intense, and I couldn't get my bearings. Out in front of me, there was nothing but the cold, unfeeling white void of the snowfall, and on the other, the unknown darkness of the forest floor. It was about that time when Emma started to wake up. Groggy, she asked me where she was. I tried to explain what happened, but a mixture of adrenaline and the contusion on my torso made it difficult to speak. I don't think it mattered, though. Emma was awake, but not fully aware yet. As soon as I realized this, another thought crept up on me. Both our husbands and Evan were still out in the cold. I looked back the way that I had come, hoping to see the sheet of white that brought us into this situation, but I only saw the depths of the forest. As I looked in what I thought was the direction I crawled in, I noticed that I could no longer hear the violence of the wind, but rather it was replaced by some kind of low groaning. I left Emma propped up against a tree, and with my dim flashlight, I began to crawl methodically towards the source of the noise. However, the longer I crawled, the denser the trees became. I crawled for several minutes until I realized that my path was blocked by something. I looked up and flashed my phone light towards the dark mass, and that's when my heart sank. The trees had formed an unnatural-looking barrier, twisting and turning into one another. The bark of each tree fused into the next. As I reached out to try and touch it, the bark moved like the skin of a snake. I watched as the ripple from my touch ran up the trunk, disappearing into the pine needles. Immediately, I turned around and frantically crawled back to Emma. I had no idea what that was, but I wasn't about to stick around to find out. As I made my way through the undergrowth, the deep, labored groaning filled the air, getting louder and louder. The sound was so powerful that I could feel the vibrations through the earth. Something woke up, something large. As I moved, the forest seemed to move around me. I couldn't tell what direction I was going in until I heard a loud crack and a blood-curdling scream. It sounded like it was coming from behind me. I quickly turned and pushed through the branches and twigs. As I fought my way towards Emma, I saw some light up ahead. I soon found that the trees had parted around where I had left her, creating a clearing where the once untouched ground was now covered in the snow of the blizzard. I watched as a looming figure emerged from the twilight of the storm, high above the trees. I couldn't see any details other than the being's gigantic shadow. That was until I saw a massive arm, completely made out of bark, break the tree line. In place of a hand, there was a giant ball of roots. It stretched towards Emma, and as it did so, the roots wriggled out like tentacles, grabbing her. The sound of the storm crashed through the tops of the trees, drowning out Emma's desperate cries. I made eye contact with her for a split second as she was engulfed by living roots. She reached out with both her hands as she was snapped up into the trees. And just as quick as the shadow had appeared, the arm disappeared, and the trees flung back into place, drenching me again into total darkness. I listened to the loud groaning as it slowly faded into the distance. I was so terrified I could barely stand. My legs were trembling, so I bent over and grabbed my knees to try to brace myself. 
I began hyperventilating until I heard the snap of a twig behind me. My adrenaline surged. Unthinkingly, I picked a direction and ran. I knew I would get lost, but I didn't care. The only thing that mattered to me was getting away from whatever that thing was. It felt like my legs were running on their own as I crashed through the branches. Unable, unwilling to stop, I soon was back out in the open and trudging through knee-deep snow. The storm had passed and it was dark. It was so clear that the light of the moon was reflected on the virgin snow. I began to walk back up the hill, scanning the tops of the trees for any sign of the thing that took Emma. But there was nothing there, only stillness, silence. I was picked up by search and rescue a few hours later. Evidently, Jackson, Evan, and Nate were able to make it back to the car and drive to a ranger station for help. They asked me what happened to Emma, but I was too traumatized to say anything. The only answer I could muster was, I don't know. The official story is that Emma and I got separated in the storm and that she must have been eaten by some scavenging animal. But I know that what took her wasn't an animal. After that ordeal, Nate was devastated by the loss of Emma and blamed me for it. Honestly, I do feel responsible even though I know there is nothing I could have done. My marriage to Jackson didn't last after that. It's been three years since we divorced and I decided that I needed to find some closure with Mount Port Crayon. So here I am, on my way to see the site of the most horrific day of my life, hoping to find something that will help me understand that day. Soon after she finished telling us that, she just got up and left, and she just, I don't think she even finished her meal. She didn't even pay, I don't think. She just left, she kinda looked out of it. Yeah, I just, I feel really bad for her, honestly. Yeah. I, you know, I really hope that she finds some closure. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, she said that the police were saying that her friend was torn apart by wild animals. So I, I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to see what kind of closure you're going to get by going back to the place where that happened, you know? Yeah, maybe. It's just tough. Yeah. But on another note, uh, Cami, we just left Harmon, so we're heading out to Monterey. Mm -hmm. um, that was the next stop in Caleb's journal. So we've got a contact out there that we're going to try to hit up. Um, it's not really a contact. It's <laughs> yeah. more of a, uh, a guy that he wrote about. Yeah, there's a vague suggestion of a guy on a farm out there. So we're just going to ask around, I guess, and see if we can find out who that was. But. Yeah. Uh, we should be there in the next couple hours, so we'll keep you posted. Although, I'm a little worried because uh looks like there's a storm coming in. I hope we don't get delayed. Yeah, it's kind of behind us. It's up on the mountain, so I think we'll be all right. Yeah. But, well, we'll check in with you tomorrow, yeah, Cammie. Talk to you later, Cammie. Bye. Lower 48 is a production of Winterhawk Podcasting. Written and presented by Zach Berry and Austin Meredith. With music by Tyra Orgill.